The Texarkana Gazette is hiring. Visit texarkanagazette.com slash openings and you just might find your dream job. We're not just a paper. We love Texarkana and we're proud to be a positive force in our community. And we're not just a team. It really feels a lot more like family. So take a look. Visit texarkanagazette.com slash openings today. Hello and welcome to On the Line. I'm Carl Richter. The unsolved murders of young Karen and Gordon Alexander have haunted Texarkana for more than 40 years. In April 1981, Karen, 14, and Gordon, 13, were found brutally stabbed to death in their Arkansas side home. Infamous serial killer Henry Lee Lucas later claimed to be the murderer, but his confession was found to be false. The case went cold, but interest has recently increased in large part because of a Facebook group focused on fighting justice for Karen and Gordon. That new spotlight on the case attracted the attention of this episode's guest. Texarkana native Cheryl Hester is an expert in the emerging science of forensic genealogy. We talked about what that means and how her skills just might lead to a breakthrough in the Alexander case. Here's my conversation with Cheryl Hester. Joining me on the phone is Cheryl Hester from Aubrey, Texas. Uh, She's the Director of Genetic and Forensic Genealogy for Advanced DNA, and she is working on the Karen and Gordon Alexander murder case. How are you, Cheryl? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. What you do is so fascinating to me. Can you just first tell people what are genetic and forensic genealogy? Well, basically, I like to put it that I work in the space where DNA and genealogy marry. So you've got this new DNA technology that came online um, probably in 2009, 2010, when the first ones were direct to consumer testing came out. And in 2018, as we all know, about April 2018, um, the Golden State Killer case was solved. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, I think a lot of yes. people have heard about that one. Right, right. There was other cases being worked on, um, but that was actually the very first one to be solved that I know of. And so that kind of opened the door for the rest of us. There was not very many of us. There's still not very many uh, that actually does this kind of work. Um, so we were able to come through and start working on doe cases and um, murder cases, violent crime cases. So that is basically where we are right now. Uh, the technology has changed a lot since 2018, um, especially in the realm of how much DNA is needed to actually uh, run the testing that we actually do or that the, the labs do for mm-hmm. us. So, so how common is this uh, as a method for investigating crimes? It's not common enough. Um, yeah. 
you 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 know you hear all the cases being solved and there's a lot of them because I know that um, my friend and colleague over at Parabon they've solved over 200. Um, but I mean, if you think about how many cases that are cold or how many um, sexual assault kits that are out there that haven't been tested, mm-hmm. this is just a tiny, tiny amount. Um, that's one thing that I think all of us in this field um, try to encourage law enforcement to look at the cases that they have, especially those cold cases, and reach out to us. And, you know, it doesn't doesn't cost anything to to have a conversation about, you know, what kind of DNA, uh, what kind of evidence do you have? What do you have that we may can get DNA off of? Or, or do they have DNA, but it's so small that they've been told in the past that it's not even enough mm-hmm. to put the profile into CODIS. But uh, we have a lab here in Texas that normally, and I, I, I say these terms and some people, they just, I lose them. Normally, back in 2018, they wanted 20 to 25 nanograms of DNA. And now we have a company that can use less than one nanogram of DNA and get us a profile that we can work with. Oh my goodness. Um, Right. Well, I was trying to get a comparison here recently. I did my first keynote and a grain of sugar weighs 625,000 nanograms. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So So we're talking about something very microscopic. Right. And even degraded DNA, you know, DNA from cases that have, you know, 40, 50 years old, um, they're able to to use that. They do implantation techniques on that. Um, that's not I'm not a lab person, so I don't you know, I, I kind of know basically what they do. But, you know, that's their that's their field. Um, and also to what we call a mixture of DNA, which may be the victim and the suspect mixture together. So they're able to use that where in the past they've not been able to. So it's developed and it's still developing their stuff. Uh, there's the rootless hair. I just had an email. I had to reach out on a case that we're going to use on. Um, so if the hair, usually the hair had to have a root in mm-hmm. order to get the type of DNA we need. You need well, the now, follicle, right? Right, the right, right. Well, uh, Astrea, the lab where Dr. Green, it's his lab, actually, he came up with a technique that they can extract DNA off of a hair shaft. Hmm. That is amazing. I think all of us were so excited when we heard that because we all have cases that, you know, the DNA just wasn't enough. They used up the DNA. So then have any left. And, you know, we're left with these hairs without the root. And, um, you know, we were like, okay. You know, we're encouraging our part, our law enforcement partners. Do you have anything um, that you can use to help solve these cases? So there's there's so much, and there's so much more to come. And you know, you use these techniques only for criminal investigations. You can help people find out who their mm-hmm. parentage is, correct? Yes, that's what I did before law enforcement. Before we were allowed to use it for law enforcement, uh, 2011. I actually tested myself because it was brand new. And as a genealogist, I thought, what can this do for me as far as genealogy? And when I got my results back, I knew quickly that I, that there was going to be mysteries in my own family that I was going to be able to untangle and solve. And I, and I was able to, and my husband too, he had one. Um, and then everybody that, had, everybody that tests, they get a surprise. Mm. Sometimes it's, it's close. Like, 
they may find out their father's not their father, mm-hmm. or they have a sibling they didn't know about. Um, I've worked, I've worked over 500 Amerasian cases, and these are cases where um, during the Vietnam era, where you had the American soldiers leaving children behind that were born to Vietnamese oh, mothers. Either they didn't know or maybe they knew and they were like, am I really the father? I've seen all kinds of scenarios. So, And my father is a Vietnam vet. So that became an an interest for me in 2015. And that's when I started working with them. A lot of that I did pro bono um, just because, you know, I I felt like, you know, it was already they'd already done enough suffering. from the time that they were born until the time they were able to actually come over, those who've been able to come over to the United States. So, it, is it too personal to ask what you found out about your family? No, my they're all dead now. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad's parents, uh, my grandmother, she had eight kids, and my father is the only biological child. And oh. he's the oldest. They all know about this. Um, and the young, the youngest five, four, they had the same father, which was at the time, this was years and years ago, though. Uh, he was the marshal for uh, the city. I won't name the city. Was okay. it Texarkana? Um, that they lived in. So he fathered all these kids. I mean, so there was this long going relationship that there were suspicions. So this wasn't something that was totally surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was another surprise that I probably I don't want to talk about because it was a little bit too closer. It was it was just a little bit more. I don't know. You know, sensitive. something that they probably want to talk. Yeah, it was very sensitive. So, uh, myself, you know, I've not found any half siblings that are from, you know, Vietnam. I would be glad. I mm-hmm. would welcome it. I'm an only child. So, um, and my husband, his um, his grandfather, his dad's father, um, had just popped up in Mississippi and got married, and nobody really knew who he was. And come to find out, he was a an ex con that had wanted to start his life over again. So he left four little girls and went across the other side of the state, changed his name and married and had eight more kids. Wow. That was a huge surprise to everybody. Yeah. Everybody has a story, I suppose. Yeah, there's, you know, sometimes you don't know unless you test. Some people don't want to test. They feel like I've had people say it ruined their lives and, and I respect that. Um, but it, there's surprises. I mean, I, of course, would like everybody to test so they can upload to GEDmatch and opt in for law enforcement sharing because that's how we solve the cases. I can't use Ancestry and I can't use 23andMe, the two larger, you know, databases. So I, I'm left with, you know, GEDmatch and then Family Tree. Of course, they have to opt in first. Is that because of uh, the company's policies? They just don't release the information? Yeah. Right. Well, the ones that we can't use, they they're just keeping law enforcement out. And and I kind of understand because not everybody is on board with, you know, there was a whole thing with informed consent that went on right mm-hmm. after this started in 2019. And they opted everybody out of GEDmatch. That was a dark day for all of us because we were just devastated. I mean, we had cases that were in the middle of being researched and we go to zero. So we kind of did a little bit of a campaign. You might've seen it on Facebook for people to opt in for violent crimes. And so we had to get it. We had to get as many people as we could to go back in and opt in for law enforcement sharing, but we've lost some people. There's some people who are deceased who will never be able to log back on to opt in, right. you know, for sharing. So 
you know, it, it's very tedious. It takes a long time sometimes to work these cases, but it's rewarding because you just keep thinking about the victims and the victim's family. Mm-hmm. And that keeps, I'd say that keeps me going because I'm usually the one building trees all hours of the night, family <laughs> trees, that is. <laughs> right. I gather you're from Texarkana, correct? I am. Uh, so when were you first aware of the Alexander case? When it happened, I was 11 years old when it happened. And um, my, my mother, she talked about it. And the day after it happened, she even drove by the house uh, with me in the car because she had friends that lived over there. And she just wasn't sure where the house was located. You know, the curiosity some people mm-hmm. have. But she drove by it. So, I mean, from, I guess, the, the day after it happened. And I remember her telling me that the little girl, Karen, had passed away because I remember her talking about it and, you know, thinking, okay, she's going to wake up. She's going to be able to tell them who did this to her, but it, it didn't happen. Oh. So, yeah. It's heartbreaking. So it is. is this something that you had in your mind as you got into this line of work? Yes, it is. Yeah. I think all of us who do this, this line of work, we've got those cases that mean something to, especially those, well, it's not always the ones from our hometown, but especially those from your hometown, because you're, you've been aware of those, you know, from in this case, since it, since it happened in 1981, my partner has one too, that we're currently um, trying to get DNA on. Um, it, it's, you know, you just, you get so wound up in the cases that you're intimately connected to, or you've, you've known about for so long because you just think about it. You've had all these years to think about who did it. And then, you know, you had that, um, Henry Lee Lucas, he said mm-hmm. he did it, but he, you know, we all know about that. Um, and then, you know, you always thought who did it? The, you know, the mother had a mental illness and she was in the hospital at that time. And then she committed suicide, you know, in 1984 mm. and the house that she committed suicide in was a house that my great grandmother owned years before that. So I just, yeah. And even, even the people who have already, you know, worked with at the agency, you know, either went to school with them or knew them somehow, you know, Sullivan, his dad worked on the case. So there's a lot of personal, you know, there's a lot of personal connections to it. I think that all of us would just love to have, to be able to solve this. And, you know, if we can get a good, a good, you know, working profile. And what I mean by that is once the DNA is processed, we get that in a form of a file, of a data file. This data file is huge. And normally we do just what they call SNP testing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's testing along the whole chromosome, all the chromosomes. So it's it's taking both sides in, maternal and paternal. So when we look at what we call cousin matches that we get from from Jed match or family tree, you know, I have to number one, figure out, you know, which side is this on? Is this mom's side? Is this dad's side? And then I have to start sorting everything out. But this file will have from 600,000 to some, if we do a whole genome, a lot more mm-hmm. lines. So on each line is a, is, a, is a specific point on a chromosome. So the few markers, if you will, now, we're, I'm going to compare this to CODIS. Most of the time, CODIS is only 15 markers. And I, it's what is that? I'm markers. sorry. CODIS testing, that is the national database where 
DNA is collected across the country. Okay. You know, if you're, yeah, if you're a violent, you know, if, if they commit a violent crime or if they're in the system, the penal system, DNA is collected and it's put into this uh, big database. And if there's not a hit in CODIS, then, you know, that's when the, it either goes cold and then we come and play, you know, if, if the agency feels like they want to move with it. Because some agencies, they don't come to us. Either they're not sure, you know, about the technology, which that's understandable. I mean, it's something new uh, or, you know, financially. And financially, we try to help any way we can. There, There is other uh, Season of Justice, for example, that is an organization where they can apply for a grant to help with testing. And that helps a great deal, especially if you have to do the advanced testing, like, say, on a hair. That's the most expensive type of testing that's done, hair and bone. Mm. Um, so they can get grants to help with that testing. Or there's, like, crowdfunding and stuff like that. So we try to help them if they don't have the funds um, to actually you know, pay for the, the, uh, research. So we try to, you know, help any way we can, as far as that goes. Um, but, you know, we encourage, so in our larger, with our larger agencies, we try to do contracts with them. Uh, and these are the ones who are able to get grants, federal grants for say, Saki kits, sexual assault kits Mm -hmm. or, or other grants. And it's, it saves a lots of money because what we do is, um, we do like an hourly rate opposed to just like a, a onesie, twosie type, right, you know, right. uh, case. So it saves money. Do we get as much money? No, but it, that's not why we're doing it. You know, we're not going to get rich doing this. Yeah. Anyway, so you know, we all of us, all my colleagues that I've worked with for years, we do this because of the of the victims and and the uh, victims' families. That's why we do this. <laughs> Are you in touch with Texarkana law enforcement about the Alexander case? Yes, I am. Where right now it, it stands, it's been in the same place for a few months now. Um, we're waiting on the crime lab. Um, they're doing some some extra testing on the evidence for us. So that's kind of where we're holding at right now. It's been a while. Um, the the crime lab is back is backed up of course you know if they have something come in that's higher priority say if they need say if they have a suspect and they need an immediate comparison mm-hmm. well that's you know that that takes presence over this are, are so, we talking about a state crime lab yeah yeah we're okay. talking about arkansas state lab yeah so you know it it doesn't move fast sometimes uh the fastest part is when i get a hold of it yeah my research is the quickest part of the whole thing. I'm sure computing um, technology is advanced enough that you can make those mm-hmm. comparisons a lot faster these days. Right, right. Not it, quite it's not, CSI. <laughs> right. No, no, it's not like, the, you know, as you see it on the television, but, you know, and then again, you don't know, you know, staffing and stuff like that. So I've not worked with the Arkansas Crime Lab before, um, so I'm not sure you know, how it's going to go, but we are constantly in contact and, um, and we feel good, you know, about moving forward. Can so, you talk about what specific evidence they have? I cannot talk about that. No, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I guess the ideal outcome would be to make a match and just find 
at least mm-hmm. a, a suspect, correct? Right, right. In the way that we work. Um, so it's, it's just like if I was trying to, if you were adopted and I was going to try to find your birth parents, it's the same way, except it's a little bit more, you know, delicate as far as, you know, it's, you know, it's a violent crime, of course. Sure. Uh, and I can only use the two databases, but I just, I reverse engineer the family tree for the sample DNA that I'm given. Um, we have had a case in the past where we identified and I knew that night that this was something was wrong because who I was able to identify, or this is, we call them leads. Um, the gentleman was 11 years old when the crime happened. And I know that people, you know, there's 11 year olds who are big enough and strong enough to maybe do violent crime sure. stuff. Um, I didn't think this was going to be likely. And so once we were able to pass it on to the detective, um, what he was able to figure out through interviewing the family is that the person, he's actually a lab technician that processed the DNA to put it into CODIS. So there was a little bit of cross-contamination right. with some controls that he was working on. So we were able, to, I mean, our, it, it worked. The technique worked and it identified the right person, but there was some contamination of uh, the DNA. Yeah. Boy, it, it, it must be just so painstaking. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, we have a, we had a case of an eight year old girl, um, out of Ohio that was murdered in 19, I think it was 82. Um, it took two days, two days once we got our hands on the file because we were, and my partner and I actually got on it together. We were able to kind of narrow down on this huge family of kids and we reached back out to the agency and asked them if they had any leads. And of course, they had told us what they'd already told us. And they were like, well, there was a Crime Stopper push go out 2014. And they came back with this name. Well, they gave us the name of one of the brothers that we had narrowed in on. Mm. Yeah. So at that point, they didn't really, I don't know how much they investigated him, but in 2014, the suspect was dead. Mm. And it would have taken a lot of digging to figure out, okay, he lived on the street where she went missing, you know, some other stuff. It would have, it would have taken a lot of digging around, you know, when you don't have manpower, you know, they did a little bit and then, you know, and then they had left it alone. However, he had done five years in prison. He had molested an eight-year-old girl. He didn't kill that little girl, Mm. but he was out nine months when he kidnapped Kelly Prosser and murdered her and left her in a cornfield. And that episode that that's actually covered in an episode of Paula Zahn. I think it's called the blue raincoat because she had a blue raincoat on. And that's what was laying in the road when um, a a gentleman and his daughter was driving by. And she said, you know, here's a raincoat. That little girl's missing. You know, could this be her raincoat? You know, and sure enough, it was. And they found her body in the cornfields. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. Well, how can people help you here in Texarkana? Uh, is there any way? Well, you know, they if they've tested any of the sites or if, if they're willing to test and have their DNA compared, then, like I said, if they've already tested, then they can upload to GEDmatch. Can, can you spell that, please? Mm-hmm. It's G-E-D 
M A T C H. Okay. And um, so, if maybe someone perhaps suspects a family member, they could uh, upload their DNA. Right, or or if they suspect, you know, they should reach out to the agency, and, and you know, discuss it with them. So they said, so, you know, they can have the name, and um, because right now we, you know, we're still waiting on lab processing. Okay. Yeah. How can people get in touch with you if they want to use your service for any reason? Um, well, we have a site, which is advancedDNA.org. Okay. We can be reached there through email. Great. Well, uh, we're all wishing you the best of luck with this. It's uh, it's sort of a shadow over the city, and, and we really mm-hmm. want to uh, find out who did this. So yeah, thank yeah. you for the work you do, and thank you for oh, taking a little time to talk to me today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm praying that we can solve it. Thanks so much. Thank you. On the Line is a Texarkana Gazette podcast recorded in Star Bear Studio, right here in downtown Texarkana, USA. Follow On the Line on Twitter at O-T-L-T-X-K and on our website, texarkanagazette.com slash podcast. To support the show, post a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. The show is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Carl Richter. And I'd love to hear from you. Email me at krichter at texarkanagazette.com. I'll see you next time on the line.